Welcome to Science Sundays. This is a free public lecture series for people who want to learn more about the latest in scientific research and how it affects our daily lives. Science Sundays is put on by the Ohio State University College of Arts and Sciences and eight of its research centers. I'm John Beacom and I'm here representing both the Science Sundays committee and my own center, the Center for Cosmology and Astroparticle Physics. I have two short introductions to make today before we have our talk, which I'm very excited about. This is the first talk of this year, which is our seventh year, and uh, we're grateful for everybody's interest and support. So the first introduction I'd like to make is my colleague, Professor Jay Hollick. Thank you. Um, I represent um, the Center for Applied Plant Sciences. Uh, I'm a newly appointed director there. Uh, the focus of the center is to highlight plants and how plants can be used to solve some of the major problems to the human condition. And I really welcome you to today's uh, event. Thanks. So the Center for Applied Plant Science is the lead host of this, and I'm just helping out. And part of the reason I'm helping out today is because uh, we have a special uh, connection between Ohio State and COSI, and we'd like to emphasize that. So um, I'm proud to share uh, that my colleague Paul Sutter, who is a researcher with us and in the Department of Astronomy, is also COSI's chief scientist. And this is part of our connection to bring the, you know, the latest research from Ohio State to the um, great opportunities for reaching the public at COSI. So let me introduce Paul, who will introduce our speaker. Thank you, thank you, John. Our speaker today received his PhD in immunology in 1999 from McGill University, followed by a postdoc at Harvard Medical School. He later became the senior vice president of science and education at the Franklin Institute, where he led and launched many diverse programs in broadening STEM engagement, like the Color of Science and the Philadelphia Science Festival. And most recently, as of January of this year, he joined the COSI team to become their CEO and president. Please welcome Dr. Frederick Bertley. Thanks, sir. Everybody can hear me okay? Great, well good afternoon everyone. Um, I'd like to thank um, Dr. Beacon, Dr. Hollick, and of course Dr. Paul Sutter. Um, thank you very much for that gracious introduction. And I really want to commend Ohio State on actually offering not just, I mean, I got a chance to look at the next set of speakers, not just an incredible cast of speakers around science and, and scientific research, but for offering it for free to the public. That's so important. So congratulations. <laughs> My talk's going to be more generic, less kind of scientific research, more kind of um, science literacy and, and what this nation is facing, but I was asked to kind of introduce myself a little bit more, so we'll start with this. Um, this was, um, these were the good old days when I actually could grow here. Um, those of you who are, who are close to the front can see that I'm drooling, and the sad part of it is, is I, I can't grow here anymore, but my wife will tell you I still drool, so I kind of lost out on that. 
But the question is, how did I go from that, from being a scientist, and as Dr. Said, as Dr. Sutter said, to, to be um, part of an incredible team at COSI, heading up um, the, science, uh, the Center of Science and Industry? It begins with this, um, or I kind of wish it began with that. It's actually more here. My parents were from the Caribbean. All right, my dad is from Trinidad. My mother's from Barbados. And um, this is us. And it's not the Jackson Five. Um, two, two reasons. One, we were not nearly that talented. And two, if you see, there's six of us, actually, plus a cat. Um, but, but this is me. And, and the question is, you know, how did I get into science? And what motivated me to get into this really cool thing we call science and research? And I'm dating myself. I'm a late 70s, 70s kind of 80s kid. Does anybody recognize this? For, for young people in the audience, that's the old version of the kind of handheld um, devices for younger folks. But what was amazing is that, you know, we weren't very rich, um, but I had a paper route. And at, at, at nine years old, I begged my parents to use my own money from the paper route to buy something. And my parents were like, you know, they, they're trying to teach me about savings, so they said all the money from the paper route, you got to put in the bank. Finally, they allowed me, after multiple beggings, to buy this, right? Coleco head-to-head -head football. I bought it from Radio Shack. I was so happy. I would play it all the time. And it took these nine volt, those square batteries. The problem is, is back then the electronics were not very efficient, so it would chew through those batteries. And so, you know, again, not being very rich, I couldn't afford to buy batteries week after week. So I said, aha, I got this ingenious idea. Um, I went downstairs in the basement. I found an old lamp. I cut the cable off of the lamp. I opened the back of that game. You guys know where this is going, right? <laughs> open, open the back of the, of the game. There was a red and black wire. Took it apart. Put, attached the, the lamp wire to it. Plugged it in the wall. Best 10 seconds of my life. <laughs> I, I was playing. I remember this like it was yesterday. While I was playing, I was so excited because I said, oh, I can play this before school. I can play this after school. I can play this on weekends. And I'll never run out of battery or run out of juice. Of course, by the 11 second, poof. Explosion, the outlet was charred with a little bit of flames. My dad comes running there because I was just like, ah! My dad comes running down the stairs. And, you know, he's from Trinidad, but he lived in Canada for, when we were born, he lived in Canada for, you know, however many years. He didn't have a Trinidadian accent much until he was upset. And he said, Son, what are you doing, man? You're trying to burn down the house. And I was like, No, dad, no. But what was really amazing about that is for the very first time in my life, I was so intrigued by this thing called electricity. For me, I'd taken it for granted. You plug things in the wall, you click on a switch, it's there, created by God or whoever. You know, I'm nine years old, so who knows what's going on. But at that point, I realized that this was something way more powerful than just you know, clicking on a switch. That there's something magical happening behind the wall, and that got me hooked on science. And so with that, I became an immunologist, as was mentioned, had the pleasure of working and going to some great schools. Um, and ultimately began a research career um, with a, a research group at Harvard Medical School. And for you younger folks, I say this to say what was really cool about having a, a PhD or being very um, active in research, it allowed me to travel around the world with other people paying for it. And I, I, I say that only because if you can't afford it, you can't travel. And for me, traveling is so important to broaden horizons, but it allowed me to work with some really cool places and even live to some incredible places. I lived in Haiti, I lived in Sudan, I'm Canadian Arctic, etc. And so as you think about what can you do, remember that you know, while we're myopic in our research focus, having a, a master's and a PhD um, really opens up lots of doors. So keep that in mind. All right. And to prove the point, I went from basic science research to then intellectual property. 
Um, and I actually worked on a law firm for a while doing patent prosecution, copyright, trademark. And you're wondering, well, why would I do that? Why would I leave the bench? I loved research, but I didn't know a lot. I didn't know about how you go from coming up with a cancer vaccine to getting a patent, and then how do you start, uh, start launch your company, et cetera. And so working in intellectual property gave me those skills around venture capital, et cetera. And it was a really neat experience. Um, but always, the, the essence that would weave through the marrow of my bones was always education. I loved education. I've taught at almost every level, elementary school, high school, junior college, community college, Harvard Medical School, you name it. I love teaching. And so that kind of combination of a passion for science, the love for education, especially broad disseminating education, led me to an institution that, that Paul mentioned earlier, Dr. Sutter, the Franklin Institute, which is in Philadelphia. Has anybody been to it? Okay, great. So it's like COSI, but in Philadelphia. It's the oldest science center in the country. Um, but it's also the national memorial for this guy, Benjamin Franklin. And um, I say that because that prepared me for the job at COSA, and I couldn't be happier here. And one tidbit that I want to share with you is the Franklin Institute, the address is 222 North 20th Street. It's called the Franklin Institute. Fair enough. I hop on a plane, I fly over due west. I'm now in Columbus. I work at COSI, which the address is 333 <laughs> West Broad Street. And the name of COSI is actually the Franklin County Historical Society, and it's doing business as name is COSI. So my daughter likes to tell me, Dad, Dad, you're moving on up like the Jeffersons, you know? Um, but, uh, but, but it's just, it's really Franklin, uh, you know, how Benjamin Franklin, our greatest, one of our greatest kind of scientists, engineers, turned op entrepreneur, and then of course he was our first ambassador for this great country. It's amazing how I can't dodge him. I mean, he haunts me everywhere, which is a cool person to haunt. All right. I want to change gears, that's my intro. I want to change gears and, and collect some data. Is that okay if I ask you all some questions? All right, great, thanks. So first of all, how many of y'all texted today? Show of hands. Okay, if you're all in the front, every single hand is up, all right? How many of y'all had a prescription from a doctor in the last four years? All right, again, all the hands up. How many of you use GPS when driving to a destination? Right. <laughs> how many of you have downloaded an app? How many of you wear clothes? Every day, <laughs> all right? Um, and, and how many of you eat food? And, and, and again, for the people in the front, every hand's going up. And lastly, how many of you are sitting in the building? Okay, all of us. Now, they sound, it sounds funny, and, and it's, it's kind of humorous, but really, more important is it speaks to the fact that today more than ever, in the 21st century, we are in a science and engineering replete world. You can't escape, and if you don't believe me, see if you can wake up tomorrow morning and get through the day without using this. Most of us roll out of bed and see what our great president um, tweeted in the morning. Um, but even that, if you don't use that, if you're eating foods that have been genetically modified, whether you like it or not, unless you shop religiously at Whole Foods or Trader Joe's, these things have genetically modified organisms, which I'm not judging one or another. That's not the point of this talk. But that's there. The clothes you wear, right? Material scientists and engineers have spent millions trying to figure out how to make this a stain-resistant suit. And we're sitting in here with all this concrete cement and steel, and tell about what I'm about to say, y'all aren't nervous, and this is come crashing down and crush us, right? We're not nervous because scientists, engineers, architects, physicists, you know, you name it, have thought about this and figured out the science to make this stuff safe. It's all around us, right? All right. So much so that there's a group of engineers called the National Academy of Engineers, based in DC, but they're engineers from all around the country, essentially the country's bleeding engineers. They got together circa 2000, 2001, came out with these 14 grand challenges. 
And I won't go through all of them, but these are grand challenges that they said, if we can solve these challenges, we can make America a better country. In fact, we can make the world a better place. So everything from getting better um, solar energy, um, getting energy from fusion, clean water, bioinformatics, reverse engineering the brain, you name it. We won't go through all of them, but these are like 14 amazing things. And what's neat about this is countries around the world have followed suit. China has their grand challenges, um, UK has their grand challenges, Canada, et cetera. All right. So with that, how do you solve these grand challenges? And most of you know this term, it's called STEM. You solve these challenges through science, technology, engineering, and math. There's no secret. It's really that, you know, understanding those, those fields. And for those of you who, who talk about STEAM, this, you know, we want to put the arts in there. And that's actually critical. This is not just an add-on, but it's important to appreciate the arts. Why? Because the scientific enterprise is only there to advance the human condition. The only reason why I have cell phones, for the most part, is to talk to somebody. Right? Most people don't talk to themselves. You, medicines are, are developed to heal, help heal the ones we love. You know, transportation, you're going somewhere, most probably to see some people. I mean, the whole purpose of science and, and, and engineering is to, is to move the human condition forward, and the human condition is all about the humanities, and that's why the arts are critical. Secondly, people talk about left brain, right brain, and yeah, you might be interested in math or engineering or interested in dance and theater, but at the end of the day, you've not seen someone walking down the street with one half of a head. Right? Ladies and gentlemen, this idea of we use 10% of our brain, it's a myth. I mean, I know you know some people don't use, but, but all of us in general use 100% of our brain. Different things are firing at different times, but we are a holistic being, so the arts are critical. All right, so I want to run you through some really cool things that are happening in the 21st century. These are called quantum dots. Okay, so nanotechnology, one times 10 to the negative 9, really small. Right? Some cool properties. This is just a jar, these little vials filled with liquid form of these quantum dots. Well, what can you use them for? All right, well, here's an example. So these are cells. Now, um, you guys remember your bio class? Who took bio in, in high school? Right? You, remember, you remember that? You, you know, you, did you guys do the cheek swab thing or the onion peel on the slide? You remember that? So you either swabbed your cheek or you peeled back an onion, you put on a little glass slide, you stained it with something, you put the cover slip on it, put it on the microscope, couldn't see, part of my language, couldn't see SHIT. Right? And the teacher was like, oh, do you see the nucleus, Frederick? We all said the same thing. Oh, sure, Miss Haversham, I can see the nucleus. You really, it just looked like a pink smear. Well, look at this. You can stain cells with quantum dots, and a four-year-old can easily see where the membrane is, where the cytoplasm, where the nucleus, you can even see DNA. This is unbelievable and very cheap. But even cooler than that is this, which looks like conventional paint, but it's not. It's paint that has these chemoluminescent particles, these nanoparticles that can capture light and emit it real slowly and powerfully, right? And this paint, you will roll on your wall or roll on your ceiling. You'll take a small current, not dissimilar from when I was trying to fix my little video game, um, and you, you attach it to a switch and you run the current through it and the paint particles will glow. This is gonna transform lighting in the future. Now it's not available now, so please don't go to Home Depot or, or, or Lowe's and say that the head of COSI said we can find this paint. It's not available yet, but it will be available at some point, and more importantly, it's gonna be very cheap and environmentally friendly. All right, how about the field of engineering? Anybody like cars? All right, cars, fine, um, but not great for the environment. Some colleagues from the MIT Media Lab are working on a new kind of car, right? 100% electric. Here's a schematic of the car. It will actually fold up, okay? Here are prototypes of the car. You can actually put two full-grown adults in the car, drive where you want to go, can go up to about 35 to 40 miles an hour, you check it out like a grocery cart, you put it back at your destination, go about your business and get another one. Unbelievable, lower traffic pollution, and also really cool. Um, everybody knows who this guy is, right? Anybody know? D. 
Dean Kamen, someone said it. This is Dean Kamen. He's essentially the country's greatest inventor. He has about 450 patents, really cool things. You all know him from the Segway. Um, he actually um, invented the Segway. And some people think, oh, he died. He didn't die in the Segway. He actually sold the Segway company to somebody else, and the owner of that company actually passed away. An interesting story, and I, I met him through other reasons, and he was saying that when the, when the news broke that the, you know, the, the owner of Segway died, his mother called him up. And he answered the phone. He's like, hey, hey, Ma, how you doing? Oh, my gosh, so I thought you are dead. He's like, Mom, I'm talking to you. But it was, it was really interesting. I mean, there was massive confusion. But more important than the Segway and the other transportation things he developed, he developed this thing called the Slingshot. If any of you are Netflix junkies, there's an actual program called the Slingshot. It's a documentary that talks about this. It's remarkable. All right? It makes purified, drinkable water out of any liquid source. Now use your imagination. Every time I talk to kids, they're like, you mean pee-pee, Dr. B? I'm like, yes, even urine. Any liquid source, it'll make this purified water that you can drink. Now most of us here you know, in, in Columbus and the US don't worry about that. We turn on our faucet, we can drink the water, we can shower, we have access to clean water, minus Flint, Michigan. But, um, but most, most of the world, ladies and gentlemen, does not. In fact, 50%, 5-0, of mortality and morbidity that happens on our planet Earth every year is because populations don't have access to something as simple as clean water. So he is revolutionizing this. Now this is being tested on villages around the world, bringing clean water to populations that used to have to hike six or eight hours for a bucket of dirty water. Unbelievable, all right? Now you'd figure the UN would have taken up the cause, UNESCO, um, World Health Organization. He's an inventor, so he doesn't go to scale with anything, so he was trying to find governments or people to help. No one would. One company finally stepped up. Oh, slide's not here. Um, and those of you who saw the movie know that it was Coca-Cola. So Coca-Cola, a company that produces soft drink with high fructose corn syrup and all this other stuff that we now know is not super healthy, they jumped on this because this is a great way to help no pun intended, but clean up their reputation. So now they have these little Coca-Cola red and white swishes on them as they're being tested. All right, let's jump into the field of genomics. I'm a life scientist. Anybody know what this is? All right, so you remember the name of the movie? All right, so I have some good news and some bad news. What would you like first? Good news? I heard good and bad. Well, I'll get started with the good news. So, so we found Nemo, right? Um, and what did we do being life scientists? We plucked out the DNA. Um, the folks from the center will appreciate this. Then we cloned the DNA, meaning we just made copies of it. So imagine a photocopy for, for genetic material. The way you do that is you put it in bacteria, the bacteria replicates, therefore the genetic material replicates, and you get all the DNA you want. Anybody know what we did with the gene we pulled out of Nemo? This is a true story. Put in a tomato. Now you guys are like, Dr. B, you gotta be convinced. So there's a little, little lie. Um, it wasn't really Nemo, surprise, surprise. But it really was a fish. In fact, it was called the Canadian Arctic whitefish. And you and I, if we fell in the Arctic Ocean, we couldn't survive long because we can't thermoregulate. We can't handle that really cold temperature. But there's certain wildlife species that can. Right? Polar bears, for example, they swim around just fine. And certain fish. In this case, the Arctic whitefish. So biologists identified the gene sequence that was responsible for the fish handling that temperature, and they transfected it into the tomato because if you're a tomato farmer, you know that you can grow your crops for four to five months, but you get that one frost in late September, or early October, and you could lose your whole yield. Right? This is incredibly powerful. Okay, so that's you know, on the edges of genetically modified organisms. How about this? This is something called zero-cost diagnostics. 
right? Again, we take it for granted. We can go to the doctor, the hospital, get prescriptions, get diagnosed. Well, lots of the world, again, about 50% of the world does not have access to, to great healthcare. So a gentleman named George Whitesides out of Harvard came up with this thing called zero-cost diagnostics. It's a postage stamp sized and as thin as a postage stamp. It's got 16 circles on it. Each circle is conjugated with a specific thing, whatever you're trying to test, and you prick your finger, get one little drop of blood, put it in the corner where that line is, through capillary action, it moves and migrates down and wets the whole, all the 16 panels, and you get a color change. And the color change will tell you, do you have renal failure? Do you have malaria? Do you have HIV? Do you have lung? Whatever you want to conjugate those dots. And it takes about anywhere from about 30 seconds to a minute and a half, two minutes to give a color change. This is allowing physicians and nurses to give people pretty darn close diagnoses for things that they may have. So if you're stuck somewhere in a jungle, do you need to be evacuated immediately because you're going to die? Or is it something not, not that serious? He calls it zero-cost diagnostics because he wants it to be free for the world. He says he wants the only cost associated with this technology is how do you get it to these populations that don't have. Right? Unbelievably cool. All right, the last piece I want to talk about are robotics. Um, for those of you who aren't fans of robots, they're everywhere. If you drive a car, unless you have a Bentley or a Rolls Royce, your car was built by a robot. In fact, if you've ordered anything on Amazon, um, if you've ordered anything on Amazon.com, um, whether Amazon Prime or not, you're very rarely going to have a human being interact with that process. Your thing goes through your handheld device or your computer, gets to the, to the system, tells the robot, goes down an aisle, the robot grabs a box, brings it somewhere, gives it to another robot, that robot wraps it up, brings it to another robot, they put the address on, boom, it gets shipped to your house, you're like, wow, right? Only if there's a problem will you get a human interaction. So robots have been with us for years and years, but there's a new revolution in robotics that's happening. Um, this gentleman, he's an engineer from Queensland, Australia, at Queensland University, in fact, and he created a series of robots that are unbelievable. When he turns them on, they learn to stand up, just like a baby, stabilize themselves. Then they learn to recognize one another. Then, and this is the crazy thing, they actually create de novo, brand new way of communicating to each other. I don't mean um, speaking Swahili. I don't mean they were programmed to speak Italian or Russian. I mean, they are creating a new language. And the robots then taught he and the people in his lab the language. Now, that's unbelievable, because what differentiates us humans from most species is, quote unquote, that higher order thought, and in particular, the, the power to communicate. So if that doesn't bother you, think about this. Now, I'll just say I'm not trying to scare you, but I am trying to make the point that science, technology, engineering, math in the 21st century is zooming, and there's all these incredible things that are happening. So we really are in a high-tech society. Fair enough, right? So, and if you think about jobs, especially the younger folks, oh, I'm worried about job. You know, there's all kinds of documents that came out. This is from the Brookings Institution. Um, it talks about by the year 2020, 50% of the jobs in this country, half of all the jobs in the U.S. are going to be directly or peripherally related to science, technology, engineering, math. So if you're in those fields, you should have no problems. And we're not talking about getting a PhD. Just having some aptitude, having a, a two-year diploma in, in, in a science-y, tech-y world will, will, be, will be amazing. Um, here's just some, some interesting facts. Um, Today's top 10 jobs are technology-based and they didn't exist 10 years ago. Any students thinking about university? Not to discourage you, because it's very important to get an education. But if you're starting a four-year degree this year, half of what you learned is going to be outdated by the time you're a junior. 
That's how fast. I mean, if you think about technology, 1900s, oil, standard oil, and you know the barons back in the day in Carnegie, they would control the industry for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Today, with Moore's Law, what you invent today, 18 months later, it's done. It's just changing, right? Super quick. You can't even keep up with the updates on your, on your iPhone. It's unbelievable. All right, what about um, Apple, right? One of the big four, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and, um, and Google. Those are the largest companies now in the world. 72%, almost three quarters of all of its revenue did not come from technology before 07. Like again, going back to the old barons, that wasn't the case. And then lastly, at 1.7 billion users and growing, Facebook is now the largest country. And think about that. And if you're talking about social media and you do believe it's about connecting people, I mean, that's a really powerful company. All right. Here's just a quote from um, President Barack Obama. He says, science is more than a school subject or the periodic table or the properties of ways. It's an approach to the world, a critical way to understand and explore and engage with the world and then have the capacity to change the world. Very compelling, right? All right, and here's just a slide for, you know, that tells you, here are all the occupations you can have with just a biology degree, not a master's or a PhD. Right? Similar in engineering, and there's many more fields in this, but it just gives you a little sample. So if science is everywhere, if innovation's hot, and there's lots of opportunity for careers, what's, what's the problem? We should be you know, singing and dancing and having a ball. Well, you know, unfortunately, there are three major problems. Problem number one, the school system. The first public schools, anybody know where the first public school was in this country? Good stuff, Boston, it's still there. It's called Boston Latin. Started in 1635, right? One year later, 1636 is when Harvard opened up to take pupils from Boston, Latin, et cetera, right? And the idea was, you know, your parents walked you to school, blah, 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 and you go into school and you learn some stuff, right? <laughs> All right, so this is a real shot of Boston Latin. Now, it's not from the 1600s, it's from circa 1820, 1830. What do you all notice? All boys, so they fixed that. It took them a while, but then they opened up girls' Latin, so they fixed that. What else? All white, they took them a lot longer to fix that, but they fixed that finally. All right, so all girls, uh, I mean, all boys, all white. What else do you notice? Those of you in the front, what do you see? Pardon? How do the faces look? They're not happy, right? They're not happy. And are they, in, where, how are the desks arranged? Right? Nice, tidy rows, et cetera, right? And this is, this is fine. This is the 1800s. Remember that. And this is, this is how you learn information. You had these two wizards at the back that had all this information to teachers. And they would stand in front of you for eight hours with little breaks throughout the day. And they'd lecture to you. And you had your chalk on your board or, or whatever you had. And you could record all the information. Then in a week or two weeks, you did an exam. And you regurgitated everything you knew. Like, that's how we transferred information. And it made sense back then. Right? But today... Not much, has dip, dip, not much has changed in the public school system. You still see desks and rows, but what do you notice? Chairs are empty. Kids aren't there, because this is where they are, right? And so when you think about the evolution of technology, who rode, who rode um, a, a horse buggy here this afternoon? Anybody? Who communicated with smoke signals or beating a drum or even an old school telephone or telegraph, right? I mean, you think about all the things, maps. How many of y'all pulled, I'm old school, I like some, some historical things, so I, I have a little fetish for Rand McNally maps, and you, know, you open them up, and you look stuff. But really, when I'm trying to get somewhere, I use GPS. Everything in society has moved forward, except for our school system. It's still antiquated. You have these, these desks and rows. Meanwhile, you can find information instantly from Google. 
You don't need to go to the library, pull out a scroll, write it down, go through the oral tradition, tell somebody else. We have access to information completely instantly. And so you'd figure the school system would change, right? So that's problem number one. We've got to figure out public schools. Now let me be clear. There are some fantastic public schools here and there. I know that. Every city's got their one or two or three they're proud of. But as a nation, we're failing horribly there. Problem number two. Even though we are so dependent on science, remember, I gave you a challenge. Monday morning, see if you can get through that today without specifically being impacted by science and technology. All right? Even though we're dependent on that, if I ask people to name scientists, so not the scientists in the room, because you guys are biased. Um, not biased, sorry. You guys are experienced, rather. But um, if I ask the average person, and if it's not, it doesn't apply to you, I'll go outside and speak to the lay community and say, think of a scientist. Who's the first person we think about? <laughs> Give that man a prize, Ivanka Trump. That, I've never heard that. That's, uh, that's great. Um, someone else said it. Who do we think about? I have an eye side. This, this is not a magic show. This is true. Right? And if you're speaking to women, and you say, name a scientist, who do we say? Marie Curie. Right? And if it's Black History Month, or you're speaking to a group of African Americans, and you say, name a scientist, who do we say? There you go. Look, this is not, I didn't, I knew I would say this. This is how these slides come up. It's not a magic show. George Washington Carver, the peanut guy. Now, they're all brilliant scientists. They're amazing. They contributed, you know, you can't even count how incredible their, their um, contributions have been. But what's the issue? Thank you. <laughs> Who said that? Put up your hand. They're dead, right? And, and again, look, I love history, and you've got to celebrate the great people who came before us, and those are three great men and women. But if you're trying to motivate the next generation of transformative scientists and engineers, you're not going to connect with, with a peanut guy who's dead 100 years, and Albert Einstein and Mary Curie who looks like she's in a, an old play. It's not, it's not going to work, right? And so if I push you on, I say, okay, name me a living scientist, not the two scholars or the three scholars who came up here and introduced me. But um, if I said name a living scientist, then, you know, pushes us a little harder. Pardon me? I love, man, I wish I planned, this is, this, this, right? We say there's this weird guy, you know, he speaks funny, he's in a wheelchair, Stephen Hawking's, but this is true, right? Think about that. Think about how you know all the entertainers and athletes, etc. but we are dependent on science and technology to move forward every day, and the bulk of us know three dead people and a guy in a wheelchair. And I completely respect Stephen Hawking, obviously, he's a genius, he's an amazing physicist. So quiz. So quiz time. Um, do we have scientists? Anybody know the person on the left? Yes. Morgan Freeman, right? Anybody know the person on the right? You do? All right, good job. Go ahead. So this is Jim West, right? That's right. So Jim West and his German colleague, Gerhard Sessler, own all the patents that made the, um, something called an electret with a T microphone. That's in 100% of cell phones around the world. Imagine your life without a cell phone. Right? We depend on it. The, met, the people that made it possible, he and his colleague, right? and yet we don't know about them. Never heard of them. All right? Well, except for our, our, our goddess over here. All right, what about the person on, on the right? Anybody know this guy? I know all the older women like Sean Connery. All right? All right. Well, on the left is Dr. Paul Barron. Right? In 1977 or thereabouts, he came out with something called packet switching, which was the foundation for the internet. Right? We're all dependent on the internet, yet we have no idea who came up with it. Everybody know the person on the right? Martha Stewart. Person on the left, those of you who are in astral physics can appreciate, this is Dr. Sandra Faber. She's one of the people who came up with the accretion disk that really showed that black holes indeed exist. I mean, how cool is that? All right? Of course, you got Brad Pitt on the left. On the right, Dr. Stephen Squires. Those of you who are into Mars rovers, not the current Mars rover, but two Mars rovers ago, he and his team at JPL led that whole expedition. 
right? But we don't know who he is. Here, is, here he is with Mara Rovers. Um, of course, we've got Oprah. On, on the right, Dr. Betty Pace. She's actually working on curing, for the first time, sickle cell anemia. Right? These are people that are alive, walking around our communities. Um, I'm almost getting to the end, so as we know Tiger was a, This slide kind of makes me feel bad, because Tiger's not smiling so much these days. But um, this is Arlie Petters, a Duke physicist, brilliant guy working on Einsteinian um, relativity and some other really cool um, physics theories. All right, and then lastly, um, and I put all these on purpose to say this is not a, a black thing or a white thing or an Asian thing. This is a human thing. I mean, we all know Jackie Chan, an amazing martial artist and actor, but this is Jeff Hahn. Triple major at Columbia in engineering, physics, and mathematics, dropped out of Columbia to invent what? The touchscreen. And in around 2005, 2006, launched one of the earliest TED Talks where he unveiled the touchscreen for the world. Changed our lives forever. All right? So, so the question is, why do we only know celebrities and entertainers and athletes, but we don't know current scientists? A lot of times people think it's money. Sure, you know, these athletes and entertainers make a lot of money. But ladies and gentlemen, the richest people in the world are people who figured out how to use science and technology. That's why Mark Zuckerberg, Larry Page, and Sergey Brin from Google, these people are smiling because they have more money than any athlete or entertainer, right? So it's not that, it's, it's the other obvious thing, it's the media, right? Now, the media has to do their job, and I know they have to sell things, et cetera, et cetera, but I, so I'm not saying they shouldn't cover sports or entertainment. I watch Netflix, I confess, I love sports. I was actually at the OSU game yesterday, it was my first experience at the OSU game, and I, I love, I love sports, but I'm just suggesting that the media should do a better job at balancing or at least showcasing some of the other things. If we are dependent on science, if scientists and engineers stopped working tomorrow, we'd be good for a few years, and then things would fade off, and then we'd be in complete darkness, right? I mean, we need that. So, you know, this is a, for all of you out there who have connections to the media, push them and see if they can, you know, cover some more of this. So, is there hope? Next slide. So um, the most, this is not a political speech, the, the most, um, what's, what's fascinating for me is the most popular show, right, from 2012 to 2016, and probably going to be true in 2017, Big Bang Theory. So now, this is bittersweet, you know, it's sweet because, okay, it's cool, They're, you know, people are liking these nerdy, really smart guys, but it's also very stereotypical, right? I mean, there are really smart scientists and engineers who don't act and behave this way, and so, but, but we're getting that way. And then there's this, the other extreme, where they try to make, you know, science and technology super sexy, and so you got all these, you know, investigators and stuff, but, but at least it's appreciating science and research, you know, better than, than we did in the past. All right. What's the third big problem? And this is near and dear to my heart, which is why I really appreciate, again, the center for the lectures you are putting on, especially that they're free, right? We are living, ladies and gentlemen, in a less and less science, technology, engineering, math literate society. This great nation is falling behind. There are so many people doing all kinds of studies, including the National Science Foundation. They've really led the charge to look at the state of science literacy in this country. I'm gonna show you about five slides, okay? One, believe it or not, Despite the fact that on August 21st we had the most incredible eclipse in about 100 years for us to see, believe it or not, one out of every four Americans still believes the sun revolves around the earth. Now, nobody in this room, so don't feel bad, y'all, but this is true. I heard somebody say, get out of here. This is true. All right? um, two, talk about climate change. Here's a, here's a funny cartoon. You know, the love's like, hey, the jury's still on climate change. We're getting a little better, but still, only, not only, but 69%, almost 70% of Americans are now starting to believe there's this thing called climate change. 
but 50% of those people are like, eh, it exists, but we don't have to worry about it. All right? What about this? Here you have on the top left photos of viruses or, or graphs of viruses, on the bottom are bacteria. I put that up because this may have happened to some of you in the audience. It definitely has happened to me. Go to the doctor. You're not feeling good. You're feeling crummy. You go to the doctor. The doctor says, oh, you know, I think you have a, I think you have a viral infection. Fred. I'm like, okay, that's a bummer. Um, and then they write you a prescription for antibiotics. Has that happened to anybody? Right? This is, now these are medical doctors. So when you think science illiteracy, don't just think, you know, whatever, Joe sports guy or sports girl. It, this is pervasive. These are people that went to medical school. They're telling you they think you have a viral infection, yet they write you a prescription for antibiotics, and me at the time, and like most of us, we take the prescription, we can't read the writing, we go to the pharmacy, they fill it out, they give it to you, you take the three pills a day. Well, just so we're all clear, antibiotics have no real function whatsoever against viruses. And now we have these things that are called multi-resistant super bacteria. There are some people, believe it or not, in this country, there are some people, and I don't have the statistical number here, but I can find it quickly, or you can Google it now. There are people in this country who go into a hospital with a broken leg or something that's you know, not great but not life-threatening, leave the hospital with a life-threatening bacterial infection because our medicines have been overprescribed, and now they don't have a good function utility on these superbugs, right? And um, probably my favorite is, is this image. 41% of Americans in this country believe, so almost half of the people in this country think dinosaurs and humans coexist. Now, I give a little pass for this. As I mentioned to you, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, I'm a huge Hanna-Barbera fan. <laughs> there was this cartoon, right? Remember Fred Flintstone? You guys remember the green guy? What's his name? Oh, you guys are good, kazoo, right? And he would magically, you know, give Fred all these wishes. But more importantly, what did Fred Flintstone do every day? Got in his car, his bottomless car, with his feet, went over to his work, which was in a quarry, where he sat on the back of a Dinosaur and curry. So as a kid, you know, I grew up, and so I get, I'll joke aside, I give a little pass, but really, this is a problem, right? All right, and, and, and on a much more serious note, I'm not picking on the president, that's not the point of this, okay? He is the president of the United States. But, as you all know, we were in something called the Paris Accord, right? It was signed, it was agreed to, and then it was finally signed on April 22nd, 2016. Well, in August, I think it's, I wanna say 7th of this year, but sometime in August of the summer, as you all know, he pulled the United States out of the Paris Accord. Now the Paris Accord was the world's kind of effort to squash this climate change, how can we reduce emissions, help this planet, blah, 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 right? Well, why did he pull out? He pulled out because he looked at the Paris Accord from the United States perspective as a complete business matter. And for him, from a business perspective, this was not good for growing companies in the US and blah, blah, blah. My point is, because of a science illiteracy rate, he didn't even think about whether he believes climate change or not. That didn't even factor into his calculus as to why the United States should move out. So that's how bad and how important these things around science literacy uh, are. All right? And so, so what do we need? Well, we need different kinds of schools. I talked about the examples of schools. Right? We need new ideas. We really need to evolve the education no process. And, and one of the cool things that excites me at being like a science center is instead of a school just being a building with desks and rows and teachers and kids, but that education really moves beyond that and is a community of things. Leverage technology where you have it, 
though it's not the answer, but leverage it where you have it. Of course, you want to partner in the K through 12 space. Wherever you can partner with OSU and, and industry partners, that's so important. I mean, if you think about your biology lab, right, and you compare it to what you do as researchers, they're night and day. You can go across this country, go into any high school chemistry or biology lab, and you see these antiquated instruments that got nothing to do with what we're doing today. So partner with those folks. Um, of course, being inclusive is very important. And then lastly, a place like COSI, I'm leveraging the informal science spaces is great. Also, leverage all these other cultural institutions. Remember we talked about STEM slash STEAM? It's important. I mean, zoos and libraries and Franklin County, um, you know, wonderful um, uh, park, and then of course the, the art museum. These are really good, good institutions that can help literally expand people's minds. Of course, this is COSI. I put that on top there just because I'm from COSI. All right. Um, but also, there is such an important role, getting back to the theme of you guys, of leveraging these higher eds. Don't be these ivory tower walls that are exclusionary to the public, but really have these wonderful lectures like this. Open your doors so that the average Joe and Jane won't be terrified or horrified or scared of science because they think they can't do it, but they'll feel more comfortable learning about stuff. All right, so kudos to you all. I know where I'm giving my talk. No, no, but really, I mean, just it's, I, I can't stress how, how, how great that is. And with that, you know, I welcome you to COSI. Um, and we do this, we get people excited. It's important to understand a science center isn't there to teach science. When I say a science center, I mean a science museum, right? We're there to excite people around science, get people jazzed up, make people feel comfortable wanting to learn and listen to science so then they can go to Ohio State or somewhere else and learn the cool stuff. So we do this through fantastic exhibits, great, great uh, movies, whatnot. Um, in November 2017, we're going to be opening up dinosaurs. This is really exciting, ladies and gentlemen. COSI is partnering with the American Museum of Natural History in New York to bring dinosaurs here. Now, I got to stress, um, COSI is the top 10 science center in the country, right? So if you think of Boston, Chicago, COSI, Exploratorium in California, I mean, we're all, you know, the big top 10 big guns. We're all around 300, 350,000, maybe 400,000 square feet. AMNH, right, the American Museum of Natural History, if you guys remember the night at the museum that was filmed there, that institution is 1.7 million square feet. It's the number one natural history museum in the world. They could have partnered with any country. They could have partnered with any city. They chose Columbus, and they chose COSI. So this is really exciting that we're going to be opening that up in November. Um, but that's just the, the kind of tip of the iceberg. We have a lot of stuff that's called informal science. We do a lot of work with teachers around professional development, youth programs, getting kids exposed to science earlier. We have a program called The Color of Science, and this is neat. This is to make the point that all scientists aren't old white men with thick glasses and pocket protectors, but that women make fantastic scientists and engineers, and black and brown populations have been contributing for years as well. We're going to be launching a science festival sometime in 2018, and this is really where we take science throughout neighborhoods all around Greater Columbus, um, and then, of course, we'll have some stuff at COSI. Um, this is a cool program. It's called COSI After Dark, and most science museums are known as, as fun places for kids and, and, and parents. You know, but they're actually much more diverse and dynamic than that. I mean, we talk about, we bring great programming from the womb to the tomb. I mean, we've got something for everyone. And Coast After Dark is an effort at that. It was really for 21-year-olds to, to, to 30, and then it went from 21 to 35, 21 to 40, now it's like 21 to almost 50. Um, but what's really cool is, one, we sell beer and wine and alcohol. It turns out that that gets the young folks in. But what we do is we partner with a bunch of institutions, including a lot of folks from OSU, um, where they bring some really dynamic stuff, spread it throughout the museum. You have access to all our exhibits, plus all the great things that our partners bring in, and it just gets you really excited. And we do this once a month from about 6 to 11 p.m. 
Um, and, and I love it because here's a shot from one of the events. They're both looking at the same scientific phenomena or whatever they're experiencing, <laughs> right? And you got one girl who's like, oh my gosh, this is the coolest thing. And the other girl's like, holy, right? I mean, that's just, that's really a fun thing about science. That there's something for everyone. So why do we do all this? Well, you talk about a picture being worth a thousand words. This is the daughter of a friend of mine. It's that. I mean, look at her. She is absolutely focused, intrigued, just obsessed with that beautiful butterfly. And that's the truth, folks. We all know this in this room. Kids are born curious. That's how we learn to walk, how we talk. You know, we pilot, test, and learn. We basically are little mini scientists collecting data and moving around. That's how we're born. And so it's up to society to ensure that it's okay, it's fun, it's exciting to learn about science to help raise that literacy bar. And so we want to change the old science school bus where there's one lonely boy waving to his mom, um, where the bus is packed with kids, all kids, especially the black and brown community and girls, because it does indeed take a village um, to move us forward. And so we really want to stimulate the aha moment in the next generation of, of scientists and OSU scholars. And so with that, I'll close with this slide. Um, you got one boy talking to another boy and says, hey, I taught Stripe how to whistle. Now this is funny for me on so many levels because the dog has spots, right? And he's named Stripe, so, but anyway. Um, so, so the second boy says, well, I, I don't hear him whistling. And the first boy says, I said I taught him. I didn't say he learned it. We're in OSU where we make sure people learn things. And that's what we have to do. Continue this great seminar series. Make sure that people are learning things to move the bar forward so that we can keep this country great. Um, and ultimately, that next generation is going to take care of our planet. Thank you very much. Well, I think Dr. Bertley would be happy to take some questions. And we have a, a tradition here in Science Sundays that uh, the first questions go to the, the youngest people in the audience, or the youngest person who has their hand up gets called on first. So let's take some questions, and I'll ask you to repeat the questions when they come around. Absolutely. Somebody. Oh, OK. You're thinking about putting your hand up, aren't you? No. <laughs> All right, somebody else. Here we go. I mean, that's a great question. So, so one of the questions was, um, you know, how do you make the scientific literature more accessible to the public? And it was really steamed in, in kind of, you know, the media might try to give some, some information from science, but then it might get blocked or what have you. Um, so a few things. One, the scientists and engineers. Show up your hands, please, in the audience. We, a lot of you, great. You all are brilliant. You're doing your work in your labs, or your spaces, your, you know, wherever you're, you're working, whatever disciplines you're working in. We as scientists have to ourselves do a better job 
at stop this nonsense of trying to have an exclusive vocabulary where just 16 of us in the world know what we're talking about and blah, blah, blah. We need to break the stuff down to make it accessible and enjoyable. Because the average person, ladies and gentlemen, is not going to walk into OSU, is not going to walk into Harvard, Princeton, MIT, is not going to walk into Autobahn or Capital to go learn about is climate change real, are GMOs bad, what's the latest engineering, because as Ivory Towers, we're, you know, we're working on our research, we're distant. Okay? It's not about giving away your trade secrets, but we as scientists and engineers ourselves have to make us more accessible. That's point number one. But point number two, um, you know, one of the problems with the media is the media doesn't hire scientists or engineers to do their stuff. So for example, if your car broke down, who are you going to go to? Right? A mechanic. Right? If your sink breaks or your toilet's not flushing and you're not handy, you'll call a plumber. Right? This is what we do. Well, for some reason, if you're worried about vaccines, you don't go to an immunologist, but you ask Jenny McCarthy or Oprah their opinion. You're laughing, but this is true, ladies and gentlemen. Think about how ridiculous that is, right? Why don't we go to vaccine experts on both sides, right? Because you're going to get scientists who think different things, but go to them to find out if vaccines indeed cause autism, measles vaccine cause autism or not. We don't do that. Jenny McCarthy, who might be a superb actress, I don't know, but she should not, we should not be listening to her opinion on vaccines any more than if your heart broke down, you would not go to a plumber, you're going to a cardiologist. And so back to the media, the media doesn't hire all the people who put their hands up to say, hey, explain to me that science and stuff. Explain. That paper is written in language I don't understand, but you understand it, scientist, engineer. Work with me. I'm the media hostler. They don't do that. And so you're absolutely right. There's that disconnect where the media, sometimes they feel like they're boxed out. Sometimes they feel like the literature is too dense. And you know, they got to get a story in five minutes because they're going live. And they don't do their diligence. So there are many factors that play a role in there. But um, we have our own role, too, to make science engaging and accessible as well. But thank you for that question. Yes, miss. That, that's my favorite thing. So if, if, if you ever, oh, sorry, the question, to repeat the question was, um, you know, th there seems to be a, out there to some extent, there's a, there's a societal kind of mistrust around science, and can, can I speak to that? Um, I can speak to that in many ways. First of all, there's all this stuff that talks about um, psychology and decision making, and there's so much research around neuroscience as to what makes people make decisions and whatnot. And what's fascinating is fact number one, is people, a lot of times when they make their mind up, it's on an emotional basis, it's on a historical basis, it's often not steamed in the facts presented. So you can tell people the sky is blue, the sky is blue, the sky is blue. If they decide at some point, for whatever reason, the sky is green, they're not going to take it. So there's that issue as well. But the other issue is imbalanced um, reporting. So, for example, back to the measles cause of vaccine. How many of y'all heard that measles vaccine may be linked to autism? Y'all ever heard that? So, again, lots of hands are going up. Great. And uh, as a scientist, the reason why I love science is it's about testing, looking at the data, testing again, looking at the data and reproducibility, right? So science, people like to say science is a fact. Science is not a fact. Science is a process. For example, 4,000 years ago, it was a fact that the planet was flat. Right? Because at the time, the evidence that the scientists were, were the astronomers, the early astronomers were coming in, it, they thought it was flat. Enter Copernicus, did some more studies, realized, wait, 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 it's not flat, it's round. 
right? So science is correct because you keep challenging the evidence to get as close to the truth as we can, but it's not based on fact. Right, back to measles. What happened there? There is one person named Dr. Wakefield, a UK scientist, and the tragedy about this is he actually was a brilliant scientist and medical doctor. Turns out he published a paper that showed a link with very, very few samples that showed a link between measles vaccination and autism. And as you know, have been, and you have a, an autistic family member, that's a really challenging um, um, debilitation, and we're working on I don't want to say debilitation because they have gifts beyond ours, but it's, a, it's a definitely a challenging situation. And so we're working on, well, what are the causes to autism? And there's a lot of you know, work on that. And so he publishes his paper. One individual, one paper. So as happens in, in research, that publication comes out, every other scientist and vaccine biologist is trying to reproduce it. Everybody's getting kids who got measles vaccine, looking for autism. You had scientists in Canada, scientists in America, scientists in the UK, all trying to reproduce this with hundreds of thousands of cases. Nobody could reproduce it. Fast forward, turns out he was together with a pharmaceutical company and he literally got paid to fabricate falsified data, right? The story gets better. Right? or worse. Um, what happened? So, you know, the, he, he published it, I, I want to say it was JAMA, the, the journal, I want to say it was JAMA, I think it was JAMA, the, the British Journal of, one of the, it's like New England Journal of Medicine, but for the UK. Anyway, so they retracted it right away. I mean, the journal doesn't mess around. They found out that he made up this data, boom, they retract, they put an apology, sorry, this was fraudulent, blah, blah, blah. Well, you think the story's over, right? And the population's not worried about measles, vaccine, being connected. No. That one paper, just people went bananas over it. And so people like Jenny McCarthy, all these other anti-vaccine people are like, aha, one of your own scientists showed this link. He went on to lose his medical license, to be the equivalent of disbarred from research, lost his whole lab, lost all his funding. He cannot do any scientific research or be a clinician ever again for the rest of his life. But that one little thing he did is still resonating with people. So there is a mistrust. But at the end of the day, a lot of the mistrust has to do with a lack of balanced reporting. If it was balanced reporting, the media would be like, hey, look, we thought there was something there. The whole world of scientists tested it. We found out there's nothing there. Sorry, general public. We're OK with measles vaccines. You know, and, and why is it really tragic? This year and next year, and I guarantee you the year after, there will be American children dying from measles in this country because their parent chose not to vaccinate them. Now. Measles vaccine is 100% safe and 100% efficacious on protecting measles. Are they side effects? Well, there's side effects to everything, right? Do we drive cars? Of course. Have you ever seen an accident? Of course. Do accidents happen all the time? Of course. Do we choose not to drive? Of course not, right? So everything has associated with stuff. But the point is, you're a baby. You don't have the right to choose. Your parent, for whatever reason, has decided not to vaccinate you, and you die from something that's preventable. So that's my long-winded answer to that very important question. So thank you for that. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Yep, up here and then I'll come to you, sir. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I'll come back to you, ma'am. Okay, yeah. go ahead, sir. I was just con concerned because I've been fighting it since before I was a co-sci um, about basically conspiracy theorism and the whole genre of no matter what you say, you know, you're fighting a bunch of people who are going to say, well, if you agree with me, well, see, it's true. If you don't agree with me, well, see, you're part of the conspiracy. Yeah. And it's kind of, you know, so science spends a lot of energy and time 
trying to fight people who are just out. I mean, it's kind of like the guy in school who, you know, tried to trick you into putting your face, your hand up like this and stack it. You know, I mean, that never a lot of people me. grew up like you know, they grew up and now they're adults and yeah. you know, run around spreading these sorts of you know, idiotic ideas of well, the Earth is flat and here's why. It's like, hey, we just saw a solar eclipse. Yeah, that yeah. ruins your whole. You know, no, it doesn't. <laughs> Now look, you're, you're bringing up a great point, this whole idea of, of everything from science nihilism to conspiracy theory. Um, I mean, you know, everybody has the right to have an opinion, but as Neil deGrasse Tyson says, there's only one series of data, right? So, um, and, and one of the big problems with that is, is the democratizing of information, putting information out there. Things like this, things like Wikipedia, things like Google. I mean, everybody now, if you have an opinion, you can actually blast it out there and influence a lot of people. Um, the only thing I could say is, is, again, the science enterprise is about pilot testing and learning, experimenting, collecting data, analyzing it to the best of our ability and the tools we have to give us the most approximation to the truth. And you're always going to have that. There's not much that you can do. Um, but just don't put your hand in front of your face. <laughs> <laughs> All right? All right, Miss? You talked in your presentation. You mentioned our education. Amen. I mean, I, I absolutely agree with what you said. So, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can pull up a slide if you bear with me. Um, yeah. Apologize, I can't find it. I'll share it with you later. Um, so, basically, it's a cartoon from Doonesbury. I don't know if you like Doonesbury. All right. Um, and so, the, the cartoon in Doonesbury really talks about um, the one character speaking to the other character, and he says, he's on a laptop. And he says, you know what? Um, you know, I don't we don't need to, you know, we can research things so fast on this. I bet you I can out-type an information and get the data faster than you can, you know, whatever. And so he says, for example, when's Groundhog Day? When's Groundhog Day? Boom, 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 he types on the computer. 0.1 seconds, gives the date. Then the next panel says, what are the three branches of, of, of government? You know, 0.2 seconds, you know, it goes through, et cetera, et cetera. And he's making the point that by the computer and by search, you can find out any bit of information. And the last panel says, Hmm, and I'm paraphrasing here, it says, hmm, really puts into question our educational system. And he says, yes, indeed. And so it's the point that, to your point, my point, yes, we can access information in really powerful ways. What we need to do is train people to search properly, to filter properly, whatever we, with you know, congruence, think that means. And then as you filter and search and get more information, that information hopefully turns into wisdom and knowledge and a depth of understanding of stuff. And so for me, the 21st century school needs to train our children to research effectively, not just Google something and, oh, the third thing that pops up, that's your fact. And to your point, you know, it might be some conspiracy theory that wrote it, but somehow they created a web crawler that got it to the top of Google, and now you think that's fact. No, how do you mine this incredible, almost now infinite set of data to then lead, lead and get to wisdom? So I agree with you 100%. And I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying that's what we need to do to prepare the next set of kids to, to, you know, to do right by this planet. Let's take right. one last question. 
All right. Your choice. And you're away, sir. Uh, STEM education uh, should lead to invention, uh, exploration of, of different areas. How can we get this, our school system to go from uh, teach to the test to a real education when apparently a requirement for electing our officials is that they have an IQ of 75 or less. <laughs> You're setting me up with that question. Um, so the question is, you know, um, how do we set up our, our school system to, to, to change from teaching to the test and, and a STEM education, a science, technology, engineering, and, and math education really needs to allow people to problem solve, thereby get inventions and discoveries, et cetera. Um, so I couldn't agree with you more. How do you change it? Well, the, the, this is a tough and long conversation. But in general, there needs to be ubiquitous ad admission that our school systems aren't great. They're just not great. And the proof of that is, anytime anybody has any means, right? You're a young couple, et cetera, et cetera. You start having children. What do you do? You move to the areas that your research told you have the best school districts, which almost always are public schools. Again, I'm not dealing with exceptions. There's always exceptions. But in general, they're you know, up in the suburbs, higher tax base, more parental involvement to ask the questions you ask, to force the teachers and principals to do a lot of the more, more of the things that you're talking about, have a lot more hands-on learning, project-based learning, stuff that we know that works. Right? But that represents a fraction and a small fraction of the schools in this country. The bulk of the schools in this country are in the densely populated areas, which are urban cities. And those schools are atrocious, and most of us would not subject our children to that. So the first question is admitting that we have a big problem nationally and dealing with it. Now, the second problem, which is kind of weird because there is a movement of people saying, hey, we've got to change the school system. Why doesn't it change? A lot of it is obviously politics. You named it. Um, you know, I, I can guarantee you um, if all the presidents in the United States and all the congressmen and women and senators, if they sent their kids to Linden, to Hilltop, to King Lincoln public school systems, I guarantee you they'd be different. But they're not sending their kids there. And so, you know, there's a major geopolitical answer to your question. Um, it's a big problem. It breaks my heart which is why I work at a place like COSI for several reasons. One, we don't have to worry about how the school is. We can do what we think is really creative and exciting to move population. We also have the right to partner with OSU and leverage that great science and research expertise to support what we're doing for the general public. But the school system itself, I mean, it needs one, you've got to come real and be honest to say they suck. And you, too, got to care about all the poor people who are going to those schools to want to make a difference. Outside of that, you know, I mean, it's, you know, we talked about a colleague of mine, Dr. Paul Sutter, who's not, is not here anymore. I don't think I forget to pop out. Um, he's got to introduce me. You know, he's a national physicist, like my colleague over here to my left. And you know, that field, rightly so, is working on exploration, now possibly a mission, a manned or woman's mission to Mars. I mean, that's amazing and interesting and cool for all the downstream technologies and things that could help. But if we're able to take that on seriously, why can't I educate kids in Lynn? And that's a problem we all need to just think about and, and put our heads together and hopefully come up with something good. So thank you for that great question. Let's thank Dr. Burton.
Now, I noticed that there were some questions that we didn't have a chance to get to, but that's part of why we have the reception to follow. It's upstairs one floor in the traditions room. There's nice food. We'll have a chance to talk to Dr. Bertley a little bit more. And uh, thank everybody for coming. And if you're not already on our email list, I encourage you to get there. And if you have some friends who'd be interested, well, you can help spread the word to them. Thanks, everybody. All right.